Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. All right. Well, welcome everyone. Today we have with us Mark McGranahan, who I used to work with at Heroku long ago. So good to have you, Mark. You can say hi. Hey, thanks for having me. Awesome. And I'm wearing my Heroku shirt. Yeah, you're wearing your Heroku shirt to mm -hmm. celebrate the day mm -hmm. of talking to Mark. But we're and not going to talk about Heroku. There's, nope. That's, don't need that's to. been in my Twitter feed plenty over the last few Has weeks. Um, yeah, due to a security incident. And I have some news, <laughs> which is that the Summer Tech Forum is uh, officially August 15th, the week of August 15th. So the five days there and a nice. little before and a little after. Yeah. And you can find out about it at summertechforum.com. Or just search STFU. Uh, I don't think that'll no, work. That's not no, work. I don't think that'll work. No. Okay. Um, search for Summer Tech Forum Unconference. And if, you, if there's not enough description there, the overview is we try and have experiences that are very much like this podcast. You know, it's just conversations and there aren't, you know, there are no speakers. There's no. Except like, for lightning talks. We do some lightning talks. That's true. We, we have speakers for five minutes at a time. Yeah. But <laughs> uh, those and the lightning talks can be on anything that interests you, not just technical stuff. And we've had, yeah. in fact, most of the uh, non-technical stuff is probably the more memorable lightning talks. Yep. So, um, but well, yeah, we have all kinds of stuff. It's all described on the website. Uh, as much so as I can. Hopefully people can join yeah. us in Crested Butte in mm -hmm. August and yeah. we'll do more of this. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, on to Mark. So thanks for joining us, Mark. And uh, you uh, have your own podcast and I've listened to a number of episodes and really enjoyed it with Adam, uh, also um, back from the Heroku days. And um, But now you're, you're off doing a startup-ish uh, called Muse. And so I want to hear about your journey to Muse and what Muse is and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so maybe to work backwards from the present, Muse is a tool for deep work on iPad and Mac. So we have this notion that there's a lot of good software tools for production work, like video editing or creating LaTeX documents or things like that. But what we were really interested in is the, the, the messy middle of thinking, brainstorming, ideating, sketching. And we wanted to create software that captured that process in the same way that a messy whiteboard or a messy desk might. So Muse is this uh, multimedia canvas for uh, facilitating that creative process. And, and then is it so like, is it for like mostly remote work, <clears throat> like collaborating mm -hmm. with people not in the same room as you, or could you use it? Well, right now Muse is actually for individuals, so it's not yet collaborative. We can talk about that. That's an important asterisk, but it's, yeah. it's for your own private creative process for the same thing that you might use like a notebook for people often, often use that for brainstorming and ideating and sketching It's for ca capturing that, that thinking process. Okay. So I'm going to ask the obvious annoying question because I use Windows for many, for a large portion of the reason that I use Windows is because it annoys people. Um, <laughs> but, a lot, but a lot of it is because the vast majority of machines out there are Windows. So it, what's your, uh, is this always just going to be for um, iOS stuff or What's your well, for now, it's there? focused on the Apple ecosystem. And let me give you a little background on why that is. First of all, we did a lot of customer research in the research lab, which we can talk about. But we found that a, a very large proportion of creative professionals, as you might broadly define it, did use the Apple ecosystem, uh, especially Macs and iPads. 
And that brings us to the iPad. And Muse actually started as, as an app only for the iPad because we felt like people were really uh, missing the capability and potential of that platform. People bought, we heard this story constantly. We, we called it the night dresser problem. People bought iPads with the aspiration of doing all this creative work, the sort of thing that you see in the Apple ads, like, you know, taking advantage of the pencil and sketching and it's like this very tactile surface. And then what they I found themselves doing. Yeah, right. It, yeah. It's very common. But but then, uh-huh. and, and let me know if this, this reflects your experience. What people found themselves doing was watching Netflix and then putting in their, their nice stand drawer because they didn't. And, and the reason for that was that there wasn't really software that really enabled that tactile, creative, expressive experience. And, but we thought there was potential specifically on the iPad. And there are other tablets available, but especially at the time when we started this a few years ago, um, iPad was by far the best, in our, in our opinion, really the only one that was suitable at 120 hertz refresh rate, uh, incredible display, very fast processor, things like that, that just made it um, most suitable. So who it knows really in the future? That it's, it's interesting that the iPad was kind of pitched as being this like creator device, like that, that it would be this like way that, that you could just express all your creativity. Replacement for paper. Thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you're totally right. There was this huge software gap where it, it, it wasn't really. And there gone. are some tools on it. I mean, like things where you're manipulating images and stuff. Um, those are really nice on the iPad. Yeah. Yeah. There, there were a few like Procreate is, I think, a great example. It's maybe the biggest story of an app that was specifically designed for the iPad, but that's a very rare exception. Most software that we saw and indeed that we still see today is what I call transliterated. They either took a phone app and made it bigger or took a desktop app and made it smaller. And you're really missing the unique capabilities and limitations of the tablet form factor if you do that. Huh, that's cool. We'll we'll have to try Muse. I've Uh, I've never tried it. Have you ever ever tried it? No, don't. Yeah, we'll have to give it a try. Yes. And so what kind of things do you capture? Does it do? What's its magic? Yeah. So Muse, it starts as a blank canvas. And the first thing you can do is ink and erase, as you might expect. But then you can also bring in text, links, images, video, and you can combine them all on a canvas and move them around freeform and group them and, and things like that. And then you can also nest these boards within each other. So you create this sort of memory palace of your creative thoughts where you have different boards for your different projects and ideas. That reminds me of there's a tool in um, that's out of the Czech Republic that people would use for presentations. Oh, yeah. The one that like you could you zoom, zoom in around and then zoom yeah. out and it would like spin yeah. around. And I can't remember what yeah, called. the name of that one. I don't. Uh, is that Prezi? It was Prezi, Prezi yes. Prezi. Right. Yeah. Which is, that was, uh, Elm was, was like, they were building that in Elm or mm-hmm. something along those yeah, lines, right? That's right. Like, the Elm language mm-hmm. kind of came yeah. out of that. Yeah, and Prezi. it sounds it sounds a little. I mean, that was purely for presentations, and it sounds like you're trying to solve a different problem. Although it also sounds like this could be used for a presentation. Yeah, and people do do that sometimes, huh. uh, especially with the tablet. And we have this feature called a presenter pen, which is a, this disappearing ink that goes away after a few seconds. You can use it to sort of mark where you are and what you're talking about and stuff. Uh, that's cool. Oh, oh, interesting. That'd be fun. Okay, yeah. So, okay, so so tell us first about the the journey to get to the company of Muse mm-hmm. and kind of the, your startup journey. Yeah, well, let's go back uh, to the research lab that we spun out of. So the 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 original founders of the lab were actually the original founders of Heroku, and that group, and then and then several of the people who would later join 
they, they all came from this world of like enterprise SaaS, basically the typical cloud software that uh, we all know and love. And there's a lot that's great in that world, but the founders of the lab, they had this hunch that there was something that we were missing and not exploring. And that was the original promise of computers as a, a way to aid creative thinking, right? Like computers have become uh, very good at, well, A, social stuff like media and consumption, incredible advances there, and also enterprise stuff. Like uh, we talked about Salesforce earlier, that there's all kinds yeah. of apps, but uh, computers as a kind of creative tool, bicycle for the mind. We we kind of lost the plot on that. We think a little bit, and we, we had some hypo- the founders had some hypothesis as to why that was. And uh, so the lab was had a goal. It sounds like they said we want to set up a lab to discover this original purpose. Yes, the idea with the lab was to advance this field of call it creative computing. Um, and the reason that they set it up as an industrial research lab was the following. There's two well-known paths for advancing computing. One is the startup. And the startup is a very well-trodden path. But the thing about a startup is you need to be within, call it one, two, maybe three years of a commercially viable product for that to work. It's, it's really hard to get venture funding for something that's, say, 10 years away. Um, hmm. On the flip side, there's academia. And academia is amazing for generating all these great new fundamental ideas that indeed may or may not have any application to the industrial world. And that's kind of the the beauty of it. And often those ideas do find their way into production, but it might take, say, 10 or 15 years. And so there's this missing middle, this valley of death, where if you're five years away, say, from an idea, you you kind of see it out there in the distance, but it's not quite commercializable yet. You were kind of out of luck. And the way that we used to solve this back in the day was the industrial research lab. And that's this organization that brings together insights from academia and industry and targets that call it five-year time horizon. And that's what the lab founders felt like was the right thing to go after for this creative computing space. Because there were all these pieces that we saw uh, around and there was this this potential and this need that they saw, uh, but it needed a little bit more time. So that was the idea with the lab. So this is like the Xerox Park thing, which it's it's wild how many of our current things in computing trace back to Xerox Park and the research that was done there. Um, so trying to like do that same thing, but specifically focused on on creativity, uh, the creative computing <laughs> connection. Right. That's cool. So. Um, so the the some of the Heroku folks, all the Heroku folks, created this this research lab and, and yeah, got the it fun. Heroku co-founders uh, started it, and then several other folks ended up joining as principals. Peter Van Hartenberg, uh, oh, relatively nice. early, and then myself later. Awesome. Uh, and and then it's we, like we getting talk, a band back together. Yeah, a little bit of that. Um, but that, but also, it was one of the reasons the lab was wasn't is so amazing is that it had this has this particular talent model where it brings people from all over the world, you know, literally, but also in terms of different stages of their career and for different time periods and in different capacities. And so it ended up being this really cool, uh, you know, fertile ground for ideas around creative computing. So when it was started, there there maybe wasn't ideas around what what was going to come out of it. It was just like, all right, let's, let's start, let's uh, get these people together and start brainstorming and... <laughs> Yeah, I think I would have to go back and look at the original like pitch deck to see what exactly they knew at the time versus they know now. But I think there was like these these hunches of we feel like we could be doing better for creative computing. I think there was a hunch around 
touch interfaces and tablets, where if you go back five years, tablets were, they were really breaking out. And like, you could see if you, if you mapped it forward three, five, 10 years, how they could become this incredible computing platform. There were some hunches around the technology, you know, what eventually became local first, but again, it needed a little bit more time to fully play out. And they wanted to, to give it that time so that you weren't reaching only for things that were within say a year. Um, and you wanted to have more of an exploratory um, attitude as you might in academia, but sort of grounded in these these inputs and factors that you're drawing from the industrial world. So did the, um, is does the lab still exist or did they dissolve it once you started this? So uh... the, the lab still exists. It's going as strong as ever. There's actually a lot of great publishing coming out of the lab. You can check out Ink and Switch uh, on the search engine. Nice. And the, <laughs> it, it tends to work as a series of projects, often in different lines of research. So the lab would have, typically a PI at the lab would have some hunch of, you know, I read this paper on CRDTs, for example, it seems like there's something cool there. Let's put together a, a three month project around it, maybe two, three, four people and try to build a prototype app that uses CRDTs. Or we think that something's wrong with authentication. Let's explore that for a few months and, and do some prototypes around using I don't know, you know, barcodes for authentication or something. I don't know. Um, yeah. And then, yeah. but then over time, you you tended to get these like patterns, and you got these strings that you were pulling on that that seemed more and more viable. And two of those that ended up being relevant for Muse. Uh, so one is what what became local first, and we can talk a lot about local first. Yeah. Uh, but but that was a very important one. This this new way of architecting applications, and the other was touch interfaces and tablets, and how to design those to be suitable for especially this type of creative work, and what happened was those two lines of research got fairly far advanced. We had done a series of projects and both of them, we felt like we had, we were really onto something, but that to further explore and realize them, you would need to bring them into the commercial world. You need to test them with more real users and you need the, the corresponding capital to you know affect a real product. And so at that point we spun out Muse. So, uh, Adam, Yulia, and myself, who were three people working in the lab, spun out as co-founders to start this new venture. And the lab's still going, um, yeah. but this is now a, a commercial entity. Nice. And how long ago did Muse spin out? I want to say about a, a few years ago now. Yeah. Okay. And I saw that you just had Muse 2.0 released this week. Is that right? We, we did. And the the keystone of this was this local first idea, which in turn enabled us to bring Muse to the Mac and to synchronize across devices. And until recently, Muse was like a, a single player, single device app, like kind of a classic app store app that you just installed and ran locally and all the data was local. And that, that actually works you. quite well. It works in this, it works the same way that like a notebook works. You know, it's, it's always right there. It's, it's always fast. It's not, it's not going to go away if the internet's down or something. Um, but yeah. we, but we wanted to to start to bring in some of the capabilities that you expect from like a normal cloud app, and so uh, that's where Local First came in and allowed us to have both a Mac app and an iPad app now. Okay, so initially there wasn't there wasn't necessarily like a cloud sync um, model for the data, or is that is that right? Like there, right? Yeah, the the like Muse one was all all local, and okay. we've from the very beginning we've expected Muse to be multi-device. It should be on at least the iPhone, the iPad, the Mac, and the web, um, and, and to be probably, probably to be collaborative. But we, ha we had yeah. to start somewhere. And we, ch we chose the iPad because it's the iPad is the device most suited to this creative brainstorming idea. Like you want to sit back in a comfy chair and you know just do some thinking, do some reading, do some annotating. 
um, it's, it's not the, the phone and the, and the desktop are not as suitable, but those are important complements to the process. For example, the phone is where you're, you know, you're reading Twitter and you see an interesting idea and you want to capture that for later thinking and noodling. And the desktop is where you do like your, your power workflows, you're, you know, organizing the hundred PDFs into different, different folders, or you're doing an outline that summarizes everything that you've learned to date. So you need each of these devices for different things. And therefore you need your entire corpus of data to be synchronized across them. Yeah. Cool. Um, so, okay, let's get into the local first sync. Cause that, that, um, when I heard you all talking about it on your podcast, I was like, oh, this is going to be fun because we, uh, we've talked about CRDTs a little bit and, and uh, distributed systems so, um, on the podcast. So, yeah, so yeah. tell us about local first sync and, and, yeah, the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I think it makes the most sense to talk about it in terms of uh, how we got here. So the there, yeah. there, there were two worlds previously. There's a desktop world and a cloud world. And the desktop world, now you have to go back a while now, but this is when like you had Microsoft Word, you would open up the app and you would save a file to disk with your edits. And there are actually a lot of nice properties with that. For example, you can read and write when you're not offline. It's always very fast, at least as fast as your local disk. Um, especially with standard file formats, you have a lot of control. You can CP or rsync the data around to get backups. Like there's a lot of things that's nice about that. Um, and then you can even extend that a little bit with something like Dropbox, where you take that model and you add a little bit of multi-user collaboration on top. That's, that's world one. Uh, the other world is the cloud world. And the example I would give here is Google Docs. And Google Docs is the amazing gold standard for real-time collaboration. You can have 20 people on a document. You know, everyone's typing in different places and every character keystroke comes in in real time. And that's great. But then that has all these downsides of, you know, if you want to back up your own data, you're kind of out of luck. And certainly if you're offline, you're out of luck. And we had this, this hunch or this desire to get the best of both worlds. We want the character-by-character real-time collaboration, or at least the ability to do that. Uh, we want that your data is just available whenever, at least whenever you're online, it's available on all your devices and with all your collaborators. But we also wanted the the performance, the reliability, and the user agency of having a full copy of your data on each device. And it's it's very easy to list Desiderata out and say, I want all these things. Uh, the problem was that if you use either of the standard technologies, like call it regular files and folders, and even with Dropbox type stuff on top of that, or the first generation of cloud sync technologies, you just you couldn't do it. You had to go back to the beginning and redo the architecture from first principles so that you were able to get all of these qualities in one thing. And that's where this research on CRDTs comes in. Uh, so Martin uh, Kleppen- Can we yeah. spell out CRDT? Oh yeah, good, good call. <laughs> yeah, so CRDTs are, are conflict-free replicated data types. Shouldn't um, that and- be CF? The RDT? Yeah, they don't choose the right letters because okay. CRDT sounds good. Okay. Yeah, it does sound yeah. good. It works well. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so give us maybe give us um, some of the background on CRDTs. And, and it, so first of all, I'll say that when, when most of the time I hear about CD, CRDTs, it's kind of like people are like, we discovered this thing and then later realized it was CRDTs. Um, did it happen that way for you or, or, uh, well, so for, for us, it's actually a really good example of the industrial research lab at work. So we had gotten in touch with Martin Klutman, who's one of the world's uh-huh. leading academic researchers on CRDTs. And he was doing this incredible work on, on practical CRDTs. And we, I can't take any credit for this. This is a, people who were earlier in the lab than me, but they, they basically saw this and made the connection and, and plotted out several years and said, we have this problem. We want 
what would eventually become be known as local first software. We want all those properties. We're missing the technology. CRDTs could be it. Now, at the time, and even to some extent today, th that was a very long ways from reality. It's a very academic concept. You read these papers. There's like these incredible proofs with all these weird symbols. Like, it, it's, it's not it's not practical for most you know application developers to deploy this in a production app. Yeah. But that's the beauty of the research lab. You can bridge that gap and try to connect the dots between the academic world and the industrial world, which we started to do through a series of uh, prototypes and eventually with the spin out. That's cool. Yeah. And I, the thing that I love about CRDTs is that they are based on math. And I forget who said this quote, but there's a quote from, I think, a Strange Loop presentation, which was something along the lines of, if you can use math to solve a problem, you should. <laughs> And uh, yeah, I love that like CRDTs are based on math. And I think what, what's been interesting over the last few years is people like figuring out how to build something on top of the math, but not make the like end user experience be the like math experience, be like the business, yeah. the business. Functional experience. programming, I think, has this problem. Yeah, exactly. It, it pushes right? math. It on pushes the, the math onto the onto mm -hmm. the programmer. No, no, you got to understand yeah. the math though. Yeah. You know, without because you won't know what a monad is if you don't understand the math. That's right. Yeah, I think functional functional programming is actually a really good example because it, it it can and often is in the same way with CRDTs presented in this very mathy way, like these incredible formulas and proofs and complexities, and you can even get as a developer access to libraries that fully expose that to you. You know, go wild. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, but you're trying to solve this... a business problem. You're like, you've got a business need. <laughs> Just go. Yes, we but, believe and... the math. <laughs> there's in, in both cases. There's what, what is a very simple core. So in functional programming, it's just like if your functions don't have side effects, you get all kinds of nice benefits, and you don't need to use Haskell or whatever to get those things, right? It could just yep. be in your regular Ruby program. Any programming language, yeah. Um, and same thing with CRDTs. There's there's incredibly complex CRDT research and even libraries that you can use, but you could also just take this core, which is if you if you uh, if your data type has certain properties, you get benefits that are extremely useful in a local first world. Yeah. Okay. Also sounds like monads. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we got a data type and we got these other characteristics. Of yeah. It. So yeah. can you give us the big picture overview of how CRDTs work? Is that possible with the math free? Well, well so it's interesting because everyone says like CRDTs are kind of a buzzword now, but the way that we use CRDTs is actually extremely simple. We use these incredibly simple, almost trivial CRDTs. Again, it's the core principle. So I mean, just, just to very briefly describe how our system works, yeah. uh, we have you know, objects, like, sort of like you would have rows in a table, same, same sort of concept. Um, and then objects have attributes. And the, 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 the whole problem here is you need to decide if multiple devices write to a given uh, object and attribute register, you know, who wins. And so you can take the most... The, perhaps the simplest CRDT possible, which is last last right wins CRDT, and use that to manage the the merge. So that so so basically, each each edit has a has a timestamp, and we can talk about the timestamps. They're more complicated potentially than a, a you know simple <laughs> time dot now. Yeah. Um, but the, the, there's 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 no magic here with the CRDTs per se. It's like three lines of code in the client which says if timestamp greater than other timestamp, you know, take this value. Um, it's it's more the, in our case, it's it's more the principle of having this 
this, this simple but principled way of thinking about how you manage data coming from multiple clients. I think the more the, the more like interesting and complete picture is the whole local first thing. And so this is just like a kind of key enabling insight. And there are there are use cases where you need more sophisticated CRDTs. The most common one is text editing. Like if you're doing real-time text editing and you have multiple people in the same block of text, yeah. th- then you, de- you do need more complicated CRDTs to manage it. But most the entirety of our application and most of uh, most applications, you just don't need stuff that's that complicated with respect to the CRDTs themselves. It's more like everything that goes around it that's the real secret sauce. Well, and it sounds like it's such a fundamental architectural decision. You have to make this decision from day one and do right. everything this, around it. Th- this is a, a, an extremely important insight from looking at trying to migrate other systems to getting all the benefits of local first. So like a, we can take you know, two examples, like Dropbox, because you have the, this fundamental abstraction of like the whole file as a sequence of bytes, if you want to manage edits any granularity smaller than that, you're, you're kind of hosed. Like there's just no way to do it. And that's why you get, right. if two people edit the same Word document in Dropbox, there's going to be a conflict. I don't even know what Dropbox does these days, but you, it's going to be a mess. Yeah, there's really there's no, way no way to resolve that to conflict because you, you don't have enough granular information to resolve that conflict. Your granularity right. is the document, not not the text block or you know, something smaller. The event. Correct. The event. And, yeah, the and likewise, with the, cl- with the cloud, with the typical cloud world, if if the only canonical store of a client's data is on some centralized server, there's no coherent way to get all the benefits of local first on individual clients. You see people trying to get at around the edges. So it's like offline mode and caching. And it it basically never really fully works. It, it certainly doesn't give you all the benefits that you would hope from, from a system like you know, Git, where it's, everything is, is fully and properly local. So you, you have to do it from the very beginning. And yes, from the very beginning, here's why CRDTs are important is because in like the Google Docs model, you're, you have a centralized decision maker that is deciding what to do in the presence of conflicts and, and that that's on the cloud. The, The cloud is that decision maker. And in your case, you, you wanted it to be a true distributed system where there isn't a centralized decision maker. And that's the whole value of CRDTs here, right? Is that, that you don't have to centralize the decision maker to resolve the conflicts. Can you right. just that, use that... blockchain? <laughs> oh God. Oh no. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that, that is just the... every key press will cost you $10 and take 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's that will a... make me very careful when I'm writing. That's a good point. That's, so it's a, that's a plus. That's, that's a benefit. Right. Okay. Benefit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, so that is in fact the, for, for the, the key property of CRDTs. It's that if you have a set of edits or changes, once any any clients that apply all of those changes, regardless of the order or how they're batched or when they come in or whatever, they're going to end up with the same result. And you don't need a central the same state without right, the same like coordinator. yeah the same you know data object or whatever um, without this a centralized is making me coordinator. think of our Kafka interview. Yeah, yeah. We did, well, we talked about CQRS and event sourcing, yeah. which which aren't CRDTs per se, but but have some similarities. But I just think. the idea of looking at everything in terms of events and then figuring out. Well, in Kafka's case, they just capture them, and then you're it's up to you yeah. to figure out what to do with them. But here, you're talking about how to decide. Okay, here's here's what we, we can resolve that. 
but I can understand why you need mathematicians to figure this out so that because there could be holes. Yeah, why having having lawful algebraic stuff underneath the covers mm -hmm. is important for yeah, especially every client for being able to get to the same resolved state. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have to think about it in a very principled way. And with respect to CRTs, especially for the complex ones, like I mentioned, you need to be very rigorous because it's it's super easy to convince yourself incorrectly that the CRDT is is correct, but then you get into these edge cases, especially with text editing, where things go wonky. It's always been an issue with concurrency too. It's really easy to go, yeah, my concurrent program is fine. It doesn't have race conditions. It doesn't have contention. Yeah. yeah. A side note on that, so, uh, I just learned that Google has a tool called Thread TSAN, Thread Sanitizer, I think, that will like take concurrent code and and I think it runs it through all sorts of different scenarios that you usually aren't thinking about as sure. a developer and then it, it tells you like oh you have a race condition given this you know particular scenario and um so wow. it's kind of a fascinating tool that's yeah. impressive yeah if it Pretty works cool. yeah we need like a like a, a tsan for crdt or for, uh. for replicated state mm -hmm. distributed state would be interesting. Hmm. but or you could just use crdts and yeah trust that the math is correct mm-hmm so walk us through the architecture of I'm on my on my iPad in the Muse app and I do something. What what actually happens? Yeah. So uh, <laughs> when when you're on a device locally, whenever you make a change, that emits called an edit, and that edit goes into your your bag of edits. And to a first approximation, you're just saying all all the edits that you ever made in your bag of edits. And based on the bag of edits, you can you can do the CRDT merge to get up to the current state of your application and then sort of react like you're going to take that current state, feed it back into the rendering engine, and it will produce the corresponding update on uh, the UI. Now, if you're offline, that's it. Uh, and, and if and when you are online, that edit has, you know, call it like a, a, a write bit or something that, that indicates whether it's been pushed up. And so when you're online, that edit will get pushed up to our, our sync server, and that will get uh, A, persisted in your, your kind of cloud-stored bag of edits, and then B, as other clients come online, they will uh, receive that edit. We can talk more about the mechanism if, you, if you're interested. But basically, that, that edit will get conveyed out to all the other uh, devices corresponding to your user account, and then they'll go through the exact same flow of, there's this new edit, put it in the bag of edits, you know, merge up to a new state, put that into the UI to render, and then you get the update. Um, but so the logic doesn't care. I think this is a critical piece where the, the logic doesn't care if the edit event came from your own on-device, I made this here, or came from another device through the server. So you right. push it first, and then on your local machine, you do the edit. Is that correct? You push uh, it up uh, to the cloud first? You know, it's, it's more like you, you write it you write it and you affect it on your own system first. And then you can almost think of it as like a background process. And in fact, there is some batching that happens here. Okay. Um, that's, that's doing the network communication management. And that will say, okay, in the last 50 milliseconds, there's these few other writes, go ahead and, and send a, a batch up to the server with these writes and those will get conveyed out. And so this is, this is one of the incredible benefits of local first, that whole first loop of you did a write and it gets rendered. That's as fast as your SSD, right? So that can be essentially instant. Uh, it's not doing a round trip to you know Virginia or whatever to get to AWS and then come all the way back with a new rendered web page. 
Um, and and th this was one of the huge motivations for Local First. It's not mm -hmm. physically possible to have software be fast enough if it has to jump over that long of a network hop. It has to happen locally. So you do everything to update your state locally. And then in the background, on the order of you know maybe it's 10 or 15 milliseconds, you can get this state out to the other clients. Uh, but, but also you, it's... Oh, go ahead. How do you make sure it gets to the other clients? Yeah, well, that, that's where these there's some accounting basically on the client where it says, okay, when you write a transaction, it's going to say who who wrote the transaction, you know, you in this case, and it will say what what's the state with respect to the network. It's I've I've never tried to send it. I'm currently sending it. I've, I've confirmed it sent. So when you go to write to the sync server, that's going to be a, re, a request response. We're going to say you know write this this pack of edits, and once the server has successfully persisted them in the database. It will write back to the client and say, okay, I, I've confirmed that I've got these. You can count these as, as safely synced. And then the client can, at that point, go into its accounting and say, okay, this, this pack is, is synced, so I, don't, I know I don't need to resend it. And if something happens in there, that's all item potent. So you can, the client can like resend it and it's, it's fine. And the server can resend it back down to the other clients. That's all, that's all fine. So you just need to, ha to happen at least once. This, by the way, is one of the, another benefit of, of CRDTs and, and, and generally of, of thinking in this way of when everything is item potent, you know, everything becomes a lot easier. This is what Victor Klang calls effectively once delivery. Because uh, a lot of times people say they want exactly once delivery, but it's, it's uh, I think, provably impossible to do exactly once delivery. And so um, the to get to effectively once delivery, you do at least once delivery. So your system can pretty easily guarantee that it's going to be sent at least once to the destination. But then if the operation on that event is item potent, then you get effectively once because it doesn't matter how many times your event is sent. If it's item potent, you could do the same thing multiple times and not have to worry about it you know, doing something wrong. So maybe this is a minor detail, but the way I'm seeing this happen is I cause an event, my local iPad does response to that, and at the same time it's put it on a queue to be sent to AWS, and then my local machine is eventually going to see that event come back like everybody else in that network, right? All uh, the so, other and it's going to so, ignore it because it says, oh, yeah, that's that was mine. I sent that. So there, there we can, because we send up when we write these packs, we write the device that's sending, sending it. The, mm -hmm. the server, when it's conveying out these updates, knows that it doesn't need to replay oh. those. So, and it could. It would be fine. But there's no need to do that because we have the, the yes. data to be able to do that accounting. So it will just send you all the writes from devices other than yourself. I see. Okay. Yeah. Just, but then to, to make sure it's gotten onto the server, you just have a, some kind of handshake. So it's like, yeah, I got yeah it. it's like, it's a confirmed okay. request response. And then on the other side, when devices are pushed down updates in near real time, the server doesn't consider those successfully written conveyed to those clients until those clients respond to the server, which they're only going to do after they've synced the right to their own local database. Okay, and then you mentioned that time was tricky, which I would think it would be because how do you how do you decide? Well, I don't know. I mean, where does the time come from? <laughs> yeah, who decides time? <laughs> yeah, who decides what the time is so that you can say, oh yeah, this event happened before that event. So this, in, in general, in distributed systems, this is a really big problem. But for our, our case, it's actually not proven to be a big issue. And neither, by the way, of conflicts. Whenever we talk about CRDTs or these like um, distributed 
synchronization systems. Everyone always brings up conflicts and timestamps and vector clocks. And our experience over many years of working in this lab is that basically it's not an issue, at least for the use cases that we're looking at. So abstractly, our timestamp is 64 bytes of data and you can put whatever you want in there. Currently, we actually just use a regular vanilla Unix timestamp. Um, we will have, probably when we have multiple users where you have more issues potentially with clock skew and users stepping on each other, um, we'll move towards a, what's it called? Um, we, we can put the link in the show notes, but there's this specific type of timestamp that uh, James Long at Actual Budget uh, first first used to our knowledge in this setting. But it's basically a, a timestamp that still fits in 64 bytes, but has some of the properties of a vector clock. Um, so you can get logical ordering within certain constraints of updates, but it doesn't have the problem of most of the call it more academic CRDTs, which have vector clocks that blow up in space. This was a thing we, we were not willing to compromise on performance with the system. It had to be as fast as like a, a purely local SSD based app would be. And so if you have anything that blows up in the number of clients or edits or, you know, history, anything like that, it, it, it's already over. So, um, and it's, it's a good example of the sort of the industrial compromise that you have to make with systems like this. Well, yeah, and it seems like you could just say that the clock is a way to resolve these things, whether or not my timestamp is exactly the same as yours. Um, most of the time, um, oh, sometimes maybe mine's lagging behind yours. Okay, so yours will get in ahead of mine. But how often is that going to be a... You know, when you're doing this kind of interactive yeah. thing, things that are that close, does it matter or is it just like, oh, well, yeah. we'll just use this to resolve these things? Yeah. With our current setup of, of this being only for one user, you just tend not to have that sort of unexpected like clock skew and corresponding out of order versus what you expect. I think it will become a bigger issue with um, multiple users and, and collaboration. And, and then relatedly with conflicts. Like we've worked on these systems for, for years now and between the lab and Muse. And I don't think we've like ever had a real issue with conflicts. You know, maybe there's an asterisk around like collaborative text editing that becomes a bigger, a bigger problem. Um, but in, in practice, you know, humans know not to step on each other. So if you're both at a whiteboard, you're not going to like have a conflict of you both write, try to write to the same space because you see what each other are doing. You're not going to like mess each other up. And, and generally people know what they try to know other people are working on trying to step on each other. So for, for that I reason, mean, and because of hands and I could like use Muse on my iPad and my iPhone at the same exact time and like make a change and then I'd be stomping. But I wouldn't really do that in real life. Yeah. You know? Well, and, they, and you couldn't do it at exactly the same moment. You maybe could. Well, it depends on what exact means. Um, but I could have my fingers on, you know, touching the both devices at the same time. But why would I do yeah. that? Is I think I think Mark's and, point is like like you would and, and yeah, it would so, just like go oh well this one I I've decided this one the, is, this one is first and yeah. so I'm going to do this yeah. and you go oh okay yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. it's yeah. not and it's less I'm like picking up my iPad yeah. doing something picking up my phone doing something mm -hmm. like there is a, a time shift between those mm -hmm. two interactions yeah I, it's just an empirical matter it's just it's not that high up on the list it's probably not in the top 100 things we've yeah. you know run into sure. trying to build a system no. but also all, all the data is there so. You know, if, if anyone ever had an issue with, with what they believe to be incorrect conflict resolution, we could just go in the database and, you know, promote one of the transactions over the others, but literally no yeah. one has ever asked us about that. So it's just, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. 
So you're you're doing then what? some kind of event sourcing type of thing where you you're you're keeping all the edits and then uh, tell us more about that architecture that side of the architecture. Yeah. So the, the logical architecture is that each currently it's that each user has a log and the log is sequence and has sequence numbers and each device then has a read head on that log. It's it's kind of like Kafka where each device has a read head yeah. on a log and it advances when they've confirmed that they've successfully processed the, those updates to their satisfaction. Um, and it, it becomes quite a bit more complicated with collaboration because then you need something like, because we, we want to support granular collaboration where any individual document or board or group of documents could be collaborate on with any you know arbitrary set of people. Um, so then yeah. you would need something more like there's a, a logical log per document and you have a bunch of read heads corresponding to all your different documents that becomes more complicated. But the basic, the basic idea is that you have these logs and you use that abstraction to uh, get the data out to clients. And for the actual storage, we use Postgres for the transactional storage. And we could also talk about like the, the real-time aspect and the, the, the large binary blobs. That was one of the important considerations yeah. that we found, but um, that, that's the basic model. Yeah. I'd love to hear more about that. Um, okay, so a typical like se sequential log of of events, and then if I go open a, a document in Muse, does it always every time like replay all the events for that document from the, from the start, or is there some like snapshotting or something? Yeah, there's there's basically caching. Um, the the exact way that we implement this is not my, my wheelhouse is more on the server side, but I think I can give you a high level, which is that there's basically a table or a view that corresponds to the current state of all of those object attribute registers that I mentioned. So it's sort of like a, a regular SQL table where you can like select star where attribute name is this and value is that. And it doesn't need to query the entire history of the universe to do that. It just looks at the current values. Yeah. Um, so that's like in that respect, like, it's like client side CQRS where you're like materializing a view based on the logs. And then, and then, you know, based on your sequence number, like, like how far along you are in the log with your, with your materialized view. Right. And that's also, that's also up to the clients Like we've also, the, the main client that we've implemented is this, the Swift one for use in our iOS apps. Uh, but we also have a, a little JavaScript client, which is more for, for testing and experimentation. And early versions of that did just slurp up the whole history into memory and build up a, a big hash table. So you, it's kind of up to the client to do whatever they think is, is best. Yeah. And you have the flexibility to but choose that and also to like rechoose it. Yeah. Over yeah. time. The log is the truth. And so you can decide how we, how you want to deal with the truth. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One I of the other, so, go, go ahead. I was well, going to have you go into like serialization and uh, efficiency of, of events and, and yeah, all that um, kind of stuff. But, I, I do have a lot to say there that, you know, like, like I said, performance is so important to us. I, I want to make yeah. one point about the architecture. And to make this point, I want to go back to the original experience that convinced me to join the research lab and to, to work on local first. So I was yeah. meeting uh, Peter Van Hartenberg, who, who now runs the lab in a coffee shop in San Francisco. And he was showing me the, the, this, this new prototype of this, this little demo called Pixel Pusher. And Pixel Pusher was a um, pixel art editor where you have these, you know, highly pixelated uh -huh. images that you can edit, you know, choose the color and so on. Um, but it was it was real time local first collaborative, and so the demo he showed me was he had two instances of this pixel pusher app, and they were synchronizing and collaborating in real time. But there was no server; the entire app was just the the React app that he had built, yeah. and they were talking to each other. You know, I, I had spent my whole career building these these servers that are incredibly complicated. It's a huge pain to manage all of them, and then you have to like you have to have your data model on the server and on the client, and you got to keep those in sync. And it was 
it was incredible to see there's just one code base to implement this app that is real-time collaborative, which up until that point we had associated with complex cloud infrastructure. Yeah. Now, we the explore- central coordinator, which which has scalability issues traditionally. Yeah, and then, and so here's here's some subtlety around that. We explored in a lab a lot the idea of doing totally peer to peer collaboration and synchronization. Yeah. But there there are two yeah. uh, big issues with that. One is doing peer to peer connections on the public internet is let's just call it troublesome. You know, there's all kinds of obstacles in your way. For example, if you're at a cafe, often the router will block peer-to-peer connections for, you know, frankly, pretty good reasons. Yeah. But there are all kinds of other issues with natural punching and so on. Um, but the other issue, maybe even more fundamental, is that people have this reasonable expectation that if they, you know, say bring lose up their, their they, they, they lose their, like, okay, yes, say they lose their device. You know, they want to be able to get all their data back. Or the simpler case is we're collaborating on a document. You know, you, you make some edits in the document and then you go, go to sleep. And then I open up the document. I don't want to have to like wait till you get up to like send me the edits, right? I should just be able to get them. That's the, yeah. for better or worse, that's the the expectation that users right. have. So yep. we sense. ended up with this model where you still get a lot of the benefits that I just described, but you also get the benefits of the cloud. And that's to have this very simple content agnostic synchronization server. So the, the synchronization server basically just stores these logs of opaque blobs and shuffles them out to the devices as needed. Our sync server is a few hundred lines of Go code. It knows nothing uh, about boards or cards or views or ink or any of that stuff. It doesn't uh, need to, right? It's just, just shuffling these bits around. And yeah. all the logic about the data model is on the clients. So it's much easier to scale and maintain and eventually to do encryption and so on. We can talk about that on a server like this that's very simple. And by the way, it's totally generic. Like the, like I said, there's nothing that having to do with Muse in the server. So yeah, in the same way no that it's easy for us on the server, that's like, here's a board, here's a whatever. All it knows is like, oh, I got an event and, mm-hmm. and here's what I do with that event. So what's interesting, I mean, I'm just thinking more philosophically about this is like, that is actually serving you rather than trying to control you. You know, I'm, I, I guess yes. I'm thinking of this in, in terms of hierarchies in general. It's like, Sometimes you do need a central thing, but it needs to be serving you and not controlling you. Yeah. Yes. And in fact, one of the seven desiderata that we enumerated in our local first position paper was user control. That's number seven. And, you know, we want users to have the sense of, of they control the data in the sense of they can, you know, they obviously control the schema, but they can get like a full copy. They can take it somewhere else. You can convey it by a you know, USB stick on carrier pigeon, whatever, you know, it's, it's your data. Um, yeah. That's that's a really important benefit. Yeah. So in that case, the server is there for the user. Mm-hmm. They're serving the user, not not mm-hmm. the coordinator that's making the decisions around around yeah. uh, who which right wins. <laughs> and and how do and, we uh, how do we translate that into an organizational structure? That's ooh. my next question. Yeah. CRDT is for organizational so, structures. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, uh, maybe. Yeah. Maybe we can. You had asked about the. Serialization. The, the serialization so, protocol. Let, let me um, yeah, let ahead. me add a little bit more color on the architecture because we had talked about this idea of ephemeral and transactional blob data. This this is I think is really important. This is a good example of where there's a bit of a mismatch between academia and the in, in, industrial world. So when you're building a real time collaborative app, like you're building a, a real time collaborative video editor, there are three types of data that are very important. The first is transactional data, and that's what you usually see being conveyed and managed around with CRDTs. This is stuff that you would write in a SQL database, usually. 
And CRDTs, as we right. know them, are good for that. You get like high acid compliance with those. Like, yeah, they need to be they need to be durable. Pretty, yeah, you're pretty. Yeah, they need to be very durable, very reliable. The the amount of data is extremely small in the scheme of things, uh, and, and so on. Then you have what I would call an ephemeral data. So an example of this is you're moving, you have your finger on a card and muse on a tablet and you're moving it around and you on the other side are seeing that card move around. You want to see that happen as, as fast as is physically possible given the network distance between us. But you don't need to save like the whole history of 60 frames a second of where this card was for all time, right? It's, it's, it's ephemeral, it's best effort, it can be, it can be dropped. And then binary data, that's just like these huge blobs. You have like big video files or big images. And that's also a totally different shape. It can't be conveyed in the same channels. And so one of the, the, the insights from our research is that you need all three of these and they have to be like very coherent with each other. So for example, the ephemeral data, when you're moving a card around, whether it's ephemeral or transactional, so just, so just appear to the developer as a flag. You know, this is ephemeral, this is ephemeral, I'm moving okay, my finger's off the card, it's being let go, flip it to transactional. Whereas under the hood, it's going to take a completely different code path. It's like going through different you know, services and, and everything, right? It's completely different, but it needs to be presented to the user as being a coherent API. And likewise with blobs, that's going to go on a totally different storage path through S3, but the way that transactional data relates to blobs needs to be very consistent. Um, huh. Anyways, that's, a, that's uh, just an important... Uh, that's a really good insight because I think that, that part of what you... Um have discovered and i think other people are beginning to discover is that we've tried to shove all data and all rights into the transactional model or you know maybe or maybe into i don't know a NoSQL model or whatever like we try to like say like everything can fit this one model for data storage and uh data durability and data you know like like we try to one size fits all data in a lot of different ways and it's interesting that you were able to like categorize three different buckets of of needs that you have around data and and i, I it totally makes sense and, when you explain it like the the yeah the like not everything is the same shape and not everything needs the same durability and not everything needs the same um you know guarantees and and all that so makes total sense hmm. yeah and that, that that brings us perhaps to the kind of networking and protocol side so yeah. I mentioned before how the sync server is just shuffling bytes around. So that implies this in interesting separation into two protocol layers. There's what we call the network layer, which is how do you shuffle the bytes around? And there's a totally separate layer called the app layer, which is the schema of Muse boards and cards and ink and things like that. And in order for the server to not have to know about the inner layer, you need two layers, right? It might sound obvious, but it, it feels a little weird when you're developing the system and you have like these, these schemas stacked on top of each other. Um, so that, so then to go from inside out, when you, when you make an edit, you will encode a, a transaction and we use protocol buffers for encoding. We can talk about how we arrived at that, but it might not be too surprising to your listeners. Um, you, you encode this as protocol buffers and then you basically batch all those up and you can optionally compress them and so on into a network level message, which is going up to the server and saying, for example, sync these packs durably, or perhaps sync these or convey these packs ephemerally and, and so on. And the, again, because performance so you tell was the so- server, when you, when you send the message, you tell it um, what the, which are those three buckets of, of data, type of data you're in. When yes, you that, the that the server needs to know because it's gonna send the data on completely different paths. So for example, the, the data inside, the app data looks, 
basically the same. You know, it's saying the card X, Y is this, but if it's going through the ephemeral path, the server is just going to immediately bounce it on a best effort basis to the other clients that are connected yep. for that document. Like because super quick uh, broadcast loop. Just like right. And it's, and furthermore, data, it's, right, it's, it's, uh, like it's best effort. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's best effort. So if the server is saturated or the client is behind, I'll just drop it and say, you know, too bad you missed this, you know, one sixtieth of an of a second of an yeah. update. Um, whereas the transaction, when it's a completely different path, that need, first needs to get written into Postgres and then it needs to be act back from the client and so on. And then it gets pushed out to other devices. That's a complete and then obviously the S the binary data in S3 is completely different. Yeah. Um, yeah. but the the stuff inside is the same. So when the the client receives, whether it's an ephemeral or a transactional update, it will unwrap it and see. You know, this card is now X, Y and, and plumb that through and, and get the update. Huh. Do you ever put data in more than one bucket? Or is uh, it always, 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 always one or the other? Always transactional or ephemeral or blob? Well, a, a given right, mostly they always go in one bucket or another. You know, the, the, the example of moving a card on the X, Y is interesting because you could, I'm actually not sure if we do this, but you can imagine a world where when you're moving a card, you send every single update, including the very last one where you're dropping it as ephemeral, because that update will arrive, you know, call it five to 10 milliseconds sooner. And then, so they can get that update as soon as possible. And then the transactional update will come and it will basically be item potent because it will already have the XY, but it will also know at that point to persist it, which is going to take longer. Um, so you can, there's a little bit of overlap, but, but they tend to be in separate. And I, I could also imagine a world, we haven't done this yet, but you could also imagine a world where you, you do big, uh, compression in the batches, like take the last years of edits, put them into a single file, gzip the whole thing. At that point, that would be too big for putting in a Postgres database. So you might put that in, in S3, but you would know it have appropriate metadata to indicate that that is when you unwrap that at the app level, that it needs to be treated as app data. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, does, does the batch from the client always contain the, a homogenous set of data types like like is it like you batch on on transactional data like only transactions or or and then you batch on only ephemeral yeah so first of all batching is is very important this is one of the basic insights of, of high performance distributed so i'm like basically there's batching at every single level you have batches of batches of batches which is a little bit annoying but it's the way that you get the best performance and the way it's currently architected is each there's a message type for each type of path, whether it's like, you know, transactional write or, or receiving transactional data. So all the messages within that are going to be of the same type. You know, these, these are all durable writes that should be, and that, that's, that's, that's helpful because, you know, like I said, these are going through completely different code paths. So it wouldn't be super helpful to separate these, but there's also batching at the connection level. So this is a single persistent connection. So it's a WebSocket connection actually. Yeah. And you can have arbitrarily many open requests with the server. So you could say, for example, one after the other, send these ephemeral updates, send these durable updates, even before you get any response from the server. And the server is going to say back, you know, basically immediately, okay, ephemeral received. And then sometime later, you'll go back to the durable received, or you could open up, you know, 32 different writes to the server at a time and use that to, to um, saturate the yeah. network link, you know, if, if you yeah. can to get all your updates yeah. up. So that, that's another way where you do batching. Yeah. So batching, batches of batches. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, now did we get to serialization? Oh, he said protobuf. So yeah, tell us okay. more about about protobuf. Yeah, so, so the story here is there's there's a few desiderata that we had around protocol buffers. Uh, there needs to be a schema. The schema needs to be or around serialization rather. Uh, there needs to be a schema. The schema needs to be evolvable. There are a couple of critical data types that we need to be in the schema. Most notably, like byte byte slices. 
um, uh-huh. which for example, rolls out JSON. So it needs to be very fast. Uh, it needs to yep. be uh, a binary format. It can't be text. It's not fast enough. And it needs to be yep. in all of our key languages. So at least Ruby, Go, Swift, and JavaScript. And I like scoured the whole universe. And I, I came to the the disappointing conclusion, like it seemed like the only option was protocol buffers. And I did this very sad tweet, was like, which basically explained that. Like I've, I've searched everywhere. Is there another option that's better? Or is it, you know, unfortunately, as you already know, protocol yep. buffers. And, and that seemed to be the case. And, you know, protocol buffers are basically fine. You know, it's conceptually almost exactly right. And the tooling is a little bit goofy at times, but eh, it basically works fine. The one thing that I, I wish we could have gotten is, uh, what's it called? Uh, zero copy reads. Yeah. And some of the newer serialization systems do this where you don't need to like kind of read and, and process the whole thing. You can just say, I want to read this attribute and then it knows to go to this byte offset uh, and just, zoop, you know, read right. those bytes. So that, that would lazy, make it a little bit. Lazy reads on the bytes instead of having to parse the whole thing. So I, right. I yeah. think you described this in functional programming as lenses. Is that right? Maybe you could use lenses for it. Lenses are are mostly a way to have a functional query of an object graph and then provide um, mutations on pieces of that object mm-hmm. graph mm-hmm. And, and get your copy mm-hmm. out uh, when you apply your, your lens okay. to it. But, yeah. um, the, there was, there's one other a tricky piece with serialization and schemas, which is these, these two different layers. So there are simple cases like your, uh, take like the, the ping request, which is the most the simple request in our protocol, you know, re- request and response. There's there's a fixed set of attributes on that. Actually, I don't know if there's any attributes on that request, but maybe uh, oh, authenticate request. Okay, so the authenticate is always going to give you your credential to the server, and the server is going to reply back with either success or an error code. And so that's that's great for protocol buffers because it's it's fixed. It's basically going to be the same forever. But then there's a problem of what do you do about all the application data? And remember that this data is in the, this form of what we call atoms, which is like you know object ID. We have also have a scope ID. Uh, the attribute name and the value. And if, if you think about how you would, you know, typically use protocol buffers, you'd have a schema that has things like boards and cards, and those things have these attributes. But we can't do that because our data model gets pivoted into these atoms. So instead, you have this sort of weird thing where you have a, a protocol buffer definition for atoms, and you say, you know, that has this ID and this attribute name and this value. But that that pivoting is honestly a little bit weird. I don't think we have a the, the perfect answer for it yet, right. um, but it, it does become it's, it's kind of one of the, like agnostic to the domain, right? So you you actually end up having you know basically two schemas. You have the the way that you encode everything, which is in protocol buffers, yeah. and then you have the application level schema, which says you should yeah. ex, you should basically expect to see atoms for a type board that has you know title and width and height, yeah. and so you create this mapping from atoms to the actual domain. Yeah, to like domain objects. And it's yeah. it's kind of weird because you need two different schemas and they can't be the same thing because, you know, there's totally different. They can't be bro- mm-hmm. protocol buffers, for example. And so that, that's been a little bit challenging. Um, but it, do it, it you, works. In your, in your Postgres database on the server, do you store the actual proto, like, proto message or do you do you deserialize it into into the atom data and then store the atom that de- uh, like, we, we store the binary atom. data so typically when you receive when you push up to the server call it transactional data it's it's basically going to be a bunch of serialized atoms appended to each other with some yeah. metadata around it but the, the server doesn't really need to know that the server basically just says okay i'm getting uh a message that has three packs in it and packs are just opaque collections of bytes 
strip out that metadata and, and just store the packs in the database and, and put the metadata as, as columns. So yeah. the, the server needs to do very little processing, which is, yeah. by the way, that was one of the motivations for trying to get zero copy reads, because it'd be nice if you could just, you have these big byte buffers in there that's most of the data. It'd be nice if you could just read those out with having to do a full copy, but eh, it's, it's basically fine. Yeah, yeah. And then your server schema is, is um, very, uh, very basic. And so you don't have to deal yeah. with like server it's, schema. It's, it's basically one table. It's like just like updates and it's, and it's huge. Yeah. And it tells you what the binary data was, what the device was, you know, that's basically it. Um, there's, there's some other accounting stuff, like accounting for the different read heads. And there's, if it's stored in S3 where and, and things like that. But that's basically it. Super simple. Yeah. Huh. Cool. So there's three of you working in this company, you said. Uh, so there were there were three co-founders. We've since hired two other partners, and we're okay. working on hiring potentially one or two more in the near term here. Okay. And so how much of your time are you able to spend like doing this technology stuff, which you clearly are? How much time do you spend in the Muse app? architecting yeah. the system versus uh i don't know what what else you're doing uh i don't know we'll just call it managing growing up yeah business. well this kind of gets to I, I how we, we we have a very unique setup at muse so to direct, directly answer your question I, I spent basically all my time on creative work now for me i'm like a half engineer i also do product stuff and and, and some other stuff uh, at the company like i do our you know taxes or whatever um but but uh, there's no, there's no time managing, basically no time managing other people. And that this gets to this idea of a partner. So, um, Adam and I, for example, we did a lot of, of management early in our careers and that, that's kind of hard and draining. And like, after a while you get tired of like, you know, trying to encourage other people to do stuff. And we wanted this, that world that, um, we, we call it a partnership where every single person at the company is entrusted to be a, a independent high performer. And that's why they're called partners. It's a very high level of uh, responsibility and corresponding high ownership in the company and so on. And so if they need to be managed, maybe they're not a good fit. Right, right. Yeah, we don't we, we don't have time to do that. And we, we want to work with people who have incredible independent, you know, creative energy, agency, and judgment. I, I'm so impressed with it's probably, probably the thing I'm most impressed with with the Muse team is the the level of judgment that they show. You can just say like, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to decide what to do here. Just please figure it out and make a decision. And it almost always comes back great. It's such a contrast to my old, you know, management world where everything would need to be like, you know, cross-checked and stakeholders and reviews and reverts and vetoes. And yeah, I don't know. I, so I, I like the setup that we have of uh, a small number of highly empowered individuals. So it's, you're trying, it sounds like you're trying to create a flat organization. Well, we, we all know that's not, that, that's a challenge, especially as you get bigger. It's more like the the type of business that you're going to have in terms of, of size and growth is going to dictate um, the, you know, the, the personnel. So if you have a, a traditional venture-backed startup, like the classic model, uh, the startup needs to become very large, a billion dollars plus. The only way to do that is to have a very large team. And the only way to scale in that amount of talent is to have a traditional uh, management structure and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, there's also the world, like you can't have a you know a flat organization of a thousand people. That's not going to work. Um, oh, there the, are there are flat yeah, organizations that are a lot they, bigger than a thousand people. They, they, they would claim that. They would claim that. Um, uh -huh. Now maybe we can talk more about that. But um, on the other side, there's <laughs> the um, there's like the, the classic indie model of you have one or two people. They're just doing their own thing independently, 
and that's great, but you're, there's, there's a pretty limited scope of product and market complexity that you can go after. You know, with Muse, we knew that, that we were two to three to four years away from realizing the full vision. It would take at least several engineers, take some marketing work, some product work, and design work. It's, it's too big of a problem to do on a fully indie basis. But we didn't want to go and do like the full-blown venture capital startup you know, raise, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars and get a thousand person team. So we've tried to chart this middle path um, that tries to draw from the best of both worlds. There's like the, the idea of quick iteration and getting to product market fit and, you know, lean that you have from the startup world. There's also the, the idea of high ownership and responsibility that you have from the indie world and, and just independence in general and trying to combine them in this middle path. You know, we'll, we'll see. It's honestly quite, quite challenging because of how unusual it is, but that's, that was the idea with creating this partnership. Yeah, it sounds like something that might scale further than the indie startup model. I mean, it seems like with the indie startup model, you always get to a point where you go, okay, now we have to stick the normal bring in the yeah, bring stick, in the managers. Yeah, stick the normal hierarchy in place and then, you know, there's just kind of a giving up process, but here it seems like you'll probably get further before you decide you have to do that. Yeah, and certainly 5, 6, 7 people, that can operate as a single self-organizing mm-hmm. team. As you get beyond about seven, it becomes harder and you need a, you need a little bit more structure. Um, but it's, it's really, it's really a continuum where, you know, how, how big are you? How fast are you growing? How, how, how sharply divided are the responsibilities and hierarchies? And we're just trying to find a good middle path there. Well, and it also sounds like the kind of people you're hiring for this <clears throat> may produce um, perhaps a better corporate culture as the company uh, expands. Mm. Yeah, that's hope. I feel very lucky to work with the team that we have in Muse. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, that was that was great to kind of see how CRDTs can solve real world problems. <laughs> so thanks for sharing all that information with us, Mark. And yeah, really. Right. Uh, and we'll look your... forward to I, you know, playing with the app at some yeah, point. We do. Yeah, because yeah. that yeah. sounds intriguing. Yeah. Maybe we could use it for organizing open spaces, something we've talked about for a long time. Yes. Having the right electronic organization Ooh, of open spaces, but we have to have the networked one for that to work. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be fun. All right. Thank you so much, Mark. Really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun.